it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get right through now, it. Right COVID-19 vaccine are available to millions of Americans and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hugger and see her on her birthday. You know I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people, and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. It's Wednesday, which means armchair politics is coming up in about an hour. And uh, political operative Bobby Clayton Walton will be joining our roundtable regulars, uh, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter on the left and right, respectively, for uh, some commentary and analysis on local news uh, local, state, and national news headlines uh, in politics and current events, plus uh, a few interesting quotes in our, uh, the segment I love, uh, those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. But we start out this first hour with probably somebody that ought to be joining our roundtable, a former Washington correspondent for the New York Times, has written a book, and it's called Suppressed Confessions of a, uh, a former uh, New York Times Washington correspondent, Robert M. Smith. And Bob joins me by phone. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Tom. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great. And, uh, of course, I'm excited because uh, here in Michigan, the uh, restrictions were just lifted yesterday uh, as a result of COVID. I still haven't... Uh, 
gotten out of the bunker, but uh, I will be soon and looking forward to it. Um, where am I talking to you at? You're in San Francisco? Right, where things are a bit confused at ground level. That is to say, the rules and regulations have been put out, but you see some folks still on the streets with masks, some some without, and some in the stores with, without, and all that. So it's a transition period here. And it now, did you get up early to be with me this morning, or are you still up from yesterday? <laughs> I'm not sure I'm up at all, Tom. <laughs> it's, it's pretty early where you are, and I appreciate you calling in and uh, having a chance to have this conversation. But with all the things that you have done um, in mediation and in other things since your time at the Times... Why this book now? Well, I think, uh, actually, uh, you uh, put your finger on it away, uh, mediation. I, I've i been a mediator for good heavens now uh, quite a while in San Francisco and in uh, Europe. Um, I ran a mediation uh, center, uh, the mediation function in London, and taught the stuff at Oxford. And... It seems to me there are some indisputable facts everybody can agree on. Um, the country is divided. I mean, we all know that. Right. Half on the left, half on the right, right? And we also know uh, that the media <coughs> uh, is divided. That is to say, some folks watch uh, whatever, MSNBC, some folks watch Fox, uh, some, and so some people read the Wall Street Journal, some read the New York Times. What have you? The media itself is divided. And this means, to me at least, that the kind of historic way that the newspapers and media generally um, function by letting us see one another in the country, see what the people on the right, see what people on the left are like, and vice versa, and therefore see what our common uh, things are we have in common. It's not working at all like that. And the bias of the media, uh, advocacy, journalism, whatever you want to call it, has uh, hurt rather than mended the, con- the country in this regard. That is to say, advocacy journalism has exacted its price on all of us. And so to answer your question directly, my role in mediation, a commercial mediator, um, is to see if folks can get together enough to reach some sort of resolution. And I thought that that's exactly, in a sense, what's not happening in the U.S. now, and it's time for somebody with a background, uh, my, my background's in journalism, obviously, but also in law and then in mediation, to say so. Well, Bob, you, you know, it's um, interesting you talk about the, the uh, divide in the media it was some being on the right and some being on the left. And yet, we like to look back at journalists like um, Walter Cronkite and Huntley and Brinkley and think that these were really the guardians of neutrality. But your book suggests that even the media outlets and the journalists we think of as being unbiased 
have biases, but we don't necessarily see it in their reporting. It's in what they report. Uh, well, then you mean the, uh, the selection values play a role, there's no question, in the selection of the news. That's right. But there's a difference, uh, Tom, in my view, and uh, gosh, I could be completely wrong, between ha- being human and having your own values, your own preferences, your own views. I mean, I'm not going to talk about my own politics, but there, there's, uh, it's a matter of public record, I suppose, that I served the administration of President Jimmy Carter. But so what? I mean, the point is that when I uh, sat in those days in front of a typewriter, uh, the idea was for me to report neutrally whatever my own views and values were now. That's in sharp contrast, Tom, to what's happening now. I mean, I still have friends, obviously, in the, at the New York Times. But even if I weren't speaking to them, there's a controversy brewing in North Carolina now about a former Times reporter named Nicole Hannah-Jones um, at the university there in the journalism uh, department. Uh, she uh, has uh, says, uh, it's her honest, uh, open view, that um, advocacy journalism is the only kind of journalism there is. That is to say that uh, we're all biased and we ought to fess up to the fact that we're all uh, advocacy journalists, and that's it. But that's not it. You know, I, I was a trial lawyer, and when trial lawyers look at evidence, or at least the way I was trained to uh, uh, back uh, many years ago at Yale Law School, there's a range. There are some things as solid and hard and firm when you show them to the jury as uh, what? Uh, the desk, I'm, the hard wooden desk I'm sitting in front of. Um, and then there's things that are a lot more amorphous, like, you know, I don't know, uh, was the right light on a... A witness's account. Yeah, or or, you know, was the red light on... Uh, for uh, a millisecond at the time the car sped through or not, you know, right. it, it's more arguable. So you got it. So the same thing is, is in my mind, true of us. Um, yes, yeah, everybody has uh, views, and uh, but to say that the only kind of honest journalism is advocacy journalism is exactly, it, again, it's just my view, what fuels... Uh, this uh, divided press and helps divide the country. Uh, journalists, uh, you know, judges are supposed to be neutral, whatever their values are, and so are journalists. And Cronkite and Huntley and Brinkley, uh, they attempted to follow that path. And if you push down far enough and analyze it, Tom, you will find, of course, the bias crept in here and there, and the selection of things, and otherwise. Um, But uh, that's not the same as saying that the ideal is to be an advocate. Yeah, there's a case to be made for advocacy journalists, but the idea that all journalism should be advocacy on one side or another is... uh, I, I don't know. It's a tough one for me to take, Bob. How do you think we got to that point where um, was it was it cable news? I, I blame it on niche marketing. 
Well, you can blame it on a lot of things, including the internet, right? I mean, for goodness sakes, click, click page, you know, you get on there and uh, the, the more enticing, if the more untrue the story, uh, click, click, more revenue in the, in the pocket of uh, the internet uh, provider. And you can, so lots of people would uh, argue that, I suppose. But I think we got there in a kind of odd way, uh, and there, this is anecdotal, <clears throat> but, you know, I covered Watergate, and in the book, uh, Suppressed, I, I tell the story uh, of how, when I was in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times, uh, my last day at the Bureau, the next day I was going off to law school, <clears throat> I had lunch with the then acting director of the FBI, <clears throat> and he gave me... Uh, uh, a good bit of the, Wash- of the Watergate story, including names, in a French restaurant. We had lunch in Washington, and uh, there I was struggling to remember these names without taking out a notebook. <laughs> and <laughs> right, <laughs> right, you get you get the picture. Here's this kid, right? And I, I was at the time. Well, I mean, in my mind, a kid, um, you know, with his his kind of college uh, sport jacket, sitting on a red baguette in this fancy restaurant, and. And uh, with the FBI director, and the place is crowded with upscale diners, and they're going to know what's going to ha- what's happening if I pull out my notebook. And I'm terrible at names, so I'm trying to remember, you know, <laughs> spaghetti, is, spaghetti, spaghetti. That's it. So anyway, I went back and told the <clears throat> bureau the news editor, gave him the story and all that, and went off the next day, <clears throat> fully expecting that we had a wonderful jump, uh, or the Times did. And everybody, and it wasn't until a couple of months later, two months later, that Woodward and Bernstein began uh, beating the times over the head with uh, the story. So the question, obviously, is why? Why didn't the Times, Washington Bureau, take that information and use it and come out with the Watergate story then? I was so careful about it. I mean, I gave the news, I put the news editor in his office, closed the door, put up a do not disturb sign, um, <laughs> uh, took a mini tape recorder, you know, so it would be on tape, gave my notebook, uh, said here, and all the rest. And it, it didn't appear. And, you know, years later, Tom, I said uh, to the fellow, <clears throat> Bob Phelps, what's his name? Um, what in the world happened? He said, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? You know, he was an accomplished editor, obviously. Uh, he had three dozen uh, com- present company accepted really good reporters, and he did nothing with the story. And he said, well, you know, I went off uh, on a Alaskan cruise. I said, well, you didn't go on a cruise for a week. And then journalistic time a week is uh, forever, right? In those days. It, an well, and even even in today's news cycle, um, news happens pretty fast. Right. So, But anyway, he said, finally, look, do you want me to take, I, I can't remember, I don't know, uh, do you want me to take a truth serum? And I said, yeah, if that would help, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but anyway, so you're asking about things that get covered and don't. But in the book, and, and don't misunderstand. Hey, I, Bob, in my mind, Bob, I, let me, yeah. we have to put a comment here. I have a break I, I have to go to. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? 
Of course. Great. My pleasure. Bob Smith, former uh, Washington correspondent for the New York Times and author of a new book called Suppressed. And Bob and I will return after we let our broadcast partners squeeze in a few words or do whatever they do. We'll be right Hello back. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You are, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I'm willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. 
where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, We continue my conversation with the author of a new book called Suppressed, Confessions of a Former New York Times Washington Correspondent, uh, Robert M. Smith. Bob, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. No, my God, I'm honored. That panoply of fascinating people I just listened to. Whoa. <laughs> well, we have a lot of fun on this show, and, and uh, I, I, I have to admit that I will chuckle a little every time I uh, picture you in that uh, Washington restaurant with the director of the FBI talking about Watergate before Washington Post really took off with the story. And... Uh, trying to remember names without taking out your notebook in uh, and you referred to Donald Spaghetti right which was actually uh, Donald Segretti who became right. well known in that story for the uh, campaign of dirty tricks um, but uh, you know that's we were talking in the last segment about uh, the division in the media based on right and left, the same division that we see throughout the country. And you used the Watergate as an example of an omission, something that didn't get covered when it should have. There was a period of time when the Washington Post was kind of going it alone. And... Um, but it made me wonder is is the is the reverse true are there times when a story is pushed yes uh in uh, depending on the biases of um the broadcast or print outlet or internet outlet yeah and it'll keep going um We've learned uh, in some ways uh, whether it has the tra- uh, facts behind it or not. I'm no longer a reporter, uh, so I'm not going around looking uh, behind things. But I, you know, I had my experience at the Times. And the reason also I wrote the book, you were kind enough to ask, Tom, is look, at ground level, uh, the Times. Uh, the New York Times is uh, a leader of, of the press, uh, not only in this country, but, but around the world. I mean, journalists uh, in India and elsewhere uh, look to it as a, a sort of a role model. And that's why it's disappointing to me to see it um, in, in this uh, less than objective uh, camp or whatever. You know, I, I, I knew the former... Uh, publisher of the paper and sent him uh, a copy of the book and said, look, I, I don't want you to think I, I uh, don't have great affection for the paper. Uh, for Pete's sake, I grew up there. I just think that it's lost its way, and I'm hoping it gets back 
to where, in my mind, it should be in terms of objective journalism. And the question you asked before, you had this array uh, of uh, fascinating people during the break, uh, was how did this come about? How did this come about? Because it's, it's not standard, it's not traditional, and it sure is not helping the country. It's hurting the country. I think it came about, oddly enough, uh, because of Watergate. I mean, Woodward and Bernstein did a remarkable, amazing job for which they uh, were properly uh, praised and lauded. Um, but that gave rise in journalism schools um, to the desire, and a lot of uh, youngsters went to journalism school because of it, um, it, to to do the same sort of thing, investigative reporting. That is the big uh, talisman. That's the big uh, reward in the sky. Uh, and so they go along that route. But there's a difference between, a big difference, between investigative reporting and advocacy reporting. Investigative reporting, you start out not knowing where you're going, looking into something, and you're not sure where you'll end up, Right. Yeah, uh, and advocacy journalism you start out and you're not sure exactly maybe how you're going to get there but you know exactly where you're going to end up and that's the difference so I would say there's this culture uh, and it does pervade some journalism schools where uh, the doctrine so to speak uh, is uh, advocacy journalism so the youngsters are trained that way and go out that way and there you are well, yeah, it's almost as if uh, what you're describing is the story's already written. The investigation is about proving it. Correct. And that's not Absolutely right. And that's not really the way you and I remember or think of investigative journalism. You, you know, something happens that's peculiar. And and in the Watergate story, at least from uh, uh, Woodward's point of view. When he went to cover the arraignment of the Watergate burglars, the ties to the CIA and the White House really raised way more questions than the arraignment itself answered. Right. And that's what, you know, basically started the whole thing. He had no idea. It was going to result in uh, President Nixon's resignation. Um, right, he didn't start out. You're right, Tom. He didn't start out saying he wasn't okay, out to get Nixon. In fact, he admitted that he had voted for Nixon. Right. Uh, I'll tell you something. I, I probably should be uh, ashamed of or something. But when I was in the Washington Bureau of the Times, in the book, uh, Washington Bureau of the Times, I, I one day, you were a relatively small bureau as these things go. I mean, three dozen reporters or less, I guess, maybe 30. Uh, <laughs> I was, I was I, asked to... I'm going to go back to that. I'm going to go back to that three dozen reporters in a minute. All right. But, uh, well, of the three dozen, they couldn't find somebody to, to, to take the information I had on Watergate and move ahead, right? But anyway, I was asked to interview an applicant for a job in the bureau, Right. Uh, and I said, well, it's not, I'm not in HR, but oh, okay. No, they said, no, no, he's a journalist, wants to work here. I said, fine, fine. And who was it? It was Bob Woodward. Oh, really? Uh, oh, that's yeah, funny. He was working for a paper in Montgomery County, Maryland, nearby. 
And he really honestly didn't have very much journalism experience, as we all know. And uh, so he came in. He was a perfectly affable guy. I liked him. But he didn't have a journalism experience. And here he was applying to work in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. So I interviewed him. And they said, well, you know, what do you think? And I said, well, I, I think he's a very nice uh, fellow. But he doesn't have much uh, experience at all. And so he wasn't hired. Had he been hired, I suppose it might have been uh, Woodward of the Times, right? Right. That's funny. The, the You know, when you said you had three dozen reporters in the Washington Bureau, what immediately flashed my mind is what's been happening to daily newspapers around the country and how many of them in the process of of sort of morphing into online news services they would kill to have three dozen reporters for the whole production. Right, although... Not just know, a bureau. Question, <laughs> yeah, that's right, Tom. But the question is, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to make uh, a lot of money, uh, you know, through Internet activity, or are they just trying to run a nice uh, neighborhood paper? What is, what's the goal? And, and sometimes, uh, you know, look... We live in a circumstance where anybody in journalism these days will tell you that there's a, a very, very big uh, absence of local uh, metropolitan coverage. And that's just the truth of it. And it, it makes me very nervous because if you're in City Hall, you used to have a press room somewhere or other, maybe a broom closet, but you'd have people looking over your shoulder, and, and now you don't. And that's that's really uh, really disturbing because um, cities all over the country now the New York Times seems to be hanging on and and you may see you know some of the um, oh I don't want to say deterioration but I can't think of the the word that I'm looking for but it's becoming a little less than it was but for a lot of cities around the country. Um, there is no paper of record anymore. Right. Uh, well, what I would say is happening at the time is that uh, not to put too, you know, final point on it is bias uh, rather than deterioration. But, you know, I'll tell you the odd thing, an odd thing, Tom. Uh, instead of staying out of side the ring and covering uh, then President Trump, um, as it would cover other presidents in the past, the Times got in the ring and began uh, slugging out with uh, the then president. Now, regardless of what anybody in the world thinks of, of Trump, uh, the Times did not stay outside the ring and, and cover him. It got in there and began slugging it out. My, the point I'm getting to is the one you just raised. What happened as a result of that? Besides the fact that everybody, not, not everybody, but lots of people simply saw the reporting about Trump, therefore, as reflexive, um, left-wing, whatever. I, I, I'm, whether they're right or not, the New York Times made money uh, from... Uh, Trump's uh, uh, presidency and activities, however you want to characterize them, 
and and lots and lots of engaged breeders, and uh, because of uh, Trump, and at the same time, ironically, Trump supporters uh, uh, did not like, don't like the Times, um, and he got more supporters that way, and and uh, stronger supporters. So it benefits from a purely, you know, uh, distant view. The whole business benefited both uh, then-President Trump and the Times. Well, I, I, I'm sure this isn't a big surprise to you, but uh, even before Trump, um, I, I don't think the Times was a favorite of conservatives. Ha! <laughs> Gee, let me write that one down, Tom. <laughs> you might, might want to save that for your next book, Bob. Right, well, uh, I don't, I'm not sure it'll be another book. But, you know, one point I should make is we've been focusing, of course, appropriately on Watergate and, and Trump and the rest of this. But let me just, if I may, Tom, tell sure. you about one of, one of my first stories when I was, I went to the Times. I was pretty proud. It was all kind of, I, I, it was so innocent, you know, I sent a shoebox, a shoebox literally full of my clippings uh, from a paper in Boston and from Time Magazine where I'd worked to the Times. I didn't address anybody, the editor or something. I didn't know anybody. And they read these clippings in the shoebox and hired me. So it was really one of those completely naive things, and I was naive. So on one of my first assignments, I had gone to Harvard College, uh, not all that much earlier than than this period I'm talking about. I mean, what I got out when I was 21 and I was doing this when I was 26 or 7 or something. And there were riots at Harvard all of a sudden. There were riots. The students were rioting. So the Times, I guess, logically, I don't know, but they sent me back to cover these riots. So back I went. I looked for the, like the rioters, right? I mean, with my uh, uh, chino pants and the rest of it. So I show up and I try to interview the president of Harvard. His name was Pusey. And I couldn't get an interview because he wasn't giving interviews to anybody, anybody in the world. I tried hard. I, you know, I was a real young reporter and it was just my style that really tried very hard. And uh, finally, one day I was hanging out in the center of Harvard, Harvard Yard, which I knew since I'd been a student there. And all of a sudden, out of the administration building comes by himself, President Pusey, walking along, and uh, I still remember this blue uh, overcoat. And so I run, run over to him and catch up to him and tell him who I am, and I've got my notebook and all that. And I, I start just asking questions, and he answers me. So here I am getting this interview um, with the president of Harvard. Now, I, in the, as things go, I'm not pretending this is a big deal, but for a kid, and in those circumstances, it was when he wasn't speaking to anybody at all in the media. So I hurried back, filed a story, sent it to New York, and said, oh, you know, look at me, Richard Harding Davis, the big-time investigative journalist here, right? And I'm waiting uh, for the paper to come out. Instead, I get a call from, uh, in a sense, God, or, my, you know, uh, uh, Scotty Restman, who was the journalistic hero of, uh, of certainly generation, uh, extraordinary famous journalist, first, a reporter led into China and all that. Uh, so, and I think, why in the world is this fellow calling me? Holy cow, I, didn't, I don't think he even knows who I am. And it turned out 
he got on uh, when I picked up the phone. He said, um, "Look, could you think we're being hard on President Pusey?" And I said, "What do you mean hard?" And he said, "Well, you know, the man's under a lot of stress and pressure." And I said, uh, "Well, gee, I, I mean, uh, you know, he, uh, Scotty, you know, he knew who I was. I told him I had my notebook out. I was taking notes and all that stuff." And so there's no question he, he knew I was a reporter. He said, no, no. He said, but he's under a lot of stress and strain these days there, right? I said, well, sure, I guess he is. Big strike. And he said, well, why don't we let this one go? I, I said, let this one go. He said, yes. And uh, then he was off the phone. And I was just completely upside down. We let this one go because somebody, presumably at Harvard, uh, had uh, called uh, Scotty at the Times and said, gee, you know, the president at the, the university, he doesn't want to talk to the press, and your guy got an interview, and, uh, you know, things are a bit turbulent here. That was the end of that story. Suppressed. How often does that happen, Bob? I don't know how often it happens now because I'm not there. Well, uh, well, happens, now what I happens. what I see happening now a lot of the times is that you know some of the uh, the young writers at various news outlets I see this a lot locally are reprinting press releases. Yeah, that's unfortunate, isn't it? Uh, it really is, but but I wonder how how many times somebody you know gets a good story, and um, we we had a story about a local city councilman who had uh, um, pawned his city issued laptop computer. No. Yeah. Oh yeah, and uh, and it was an independent uh, news outlet, an online news outlet that broke the story. I don't think it would have gotten covered if it hadn't been for that that first release of, of that story. Yeah, I, gee, I, I mean, obviously I don't know the story. That sounds sad. And I don't want to dwell on it. It was from, you know, a couple, three years ago. But, but, um, but I just, I, I wonder how many times, uh, you know, the president of the local chamber or some big foundation or, or a big Fortune 500 company or something, you know, contacts a news outlet and says, hey, I, you know, we, we think somebody that works for you has a story that could be damaging to us and this is a bad time and it would be bad for the community if this got published. Right. I don't, I, I, I really don't know uh, the answer. But you've uh, seen it happen. I've I've seen it happen in different places. Um, it, I I don't know what's happening about that sort of overt uh, suppression uh, today. When I was a kid, uh, really a kid in Boston, uh, they used to have uh, what were called uh, uh, the, the JFR musts. Uh, who was this guy? Well, what were these musts? They were from the advertising director, and they had to appear in the paper. So it's the reverse of, of what you're talking about, but it's a sort of buying coverage, I suppose, that looks like uh, news. 
Um, so it goes both ways. What are and, you? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I, I was just going to say the book uh, "Suppressed: Confessions of a Former New York Times Washington Correspondent" by uh, Robert Smith, my guest. Bob, um, did you have an audience in mind when you were writing this book? Was this just cathartic for you, or is there a message that that we need to take away from the book? Well, it wasn't cathartic. It was hard. You know, people <laughs> tell you not to write books, and there's a one in a thousand chance it'll get published, and so on, so on. Uh, especially when, I, I mean, for goodness sake, let's be realistic, the New York Times Book Review is extraordinarily powerful in, in making books, right? Um, so it wasn't, it was hard. Um, I think the message is that Folks need to understand, and in, in the book there's a section about how to read a newspaper, that what they're reading, they can't just uh, take at face value, and there are ways of looking at this and trying to see uh, whether they are being told the truth um, in, in what it is they're reading or watching or listening to, and the message. Uh, Tom, is what I guess I touched on at the beginning. Divided country, divided advocacy media. Uh, you know, how do we get back together? And in my mind, uh, I hope that objective, non-advocacy, uh, neutral, whatever you want to call it, journalism gives us some way of looking at one another and seeing what we have in common. So... Uh, I think that's it, but I didn't want to write a book just for journalists or journalism students or, or you know, people in the business uh, saying this. Um, I wanted it to be interesting and for the general public, and so I made it into a sort of quasi-memoir with this uh, element um, in it so that it would be interesting for people to read who have nothing to do with journalism, but who, like almost all of us, I suppose, uh, every day look at, watch, read, whatever, uh, the media, and are often upset by what they see and hear. Well, I think it's fascinating and, uh, and important to talk about as, uh, as we wrestle with uh, this whole concept of alternative facts and fake news, and, and, and we need to... Uh, get away from from advocacy and and back to actual fact-based uh, recitation of what's happening like the story you told about the pawning of the of the municipal uh, <laughs> right yeah I exactly. mean, uh, no, seriously uh, you know that's a fact yeah there's no for or against it just happened right and then once you find out about it, there is your own personal reaction to it. Right, exactly. Um, or or as, as I like to think of it, is uh, encouraging people to think without telling them what to think. Exactly, Tom. Well, Bob, it has been a real pleasure, and I, um, I have to admit I have not read the book yet, but I am so looking forward to it. It's uh, a, a subject near and dear to my heart. I hope you enjoy it. Well, Bob, thanks for spending this time with me, and uh, 
keep up the good work. I, I always give guests, and we only have about 20 seconds, but I give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you. Do you have a website? Uh, yeah, but it relates to uh, my work as a mediator uh, rather than to bo- the book. But the book, if you look for Robert M. Smith Suppressed, is all over the web at this point. You can find it on uh, the usual hi, places. This is Joe Biden, Bob, I have to go to break here. Can you stick around for another Tom couple Sumner of minutes? Program. Of course. All right. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination? a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zondrick. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the mask. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. 
The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Summer Program.com. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We uh, we continue, actually, we've kind of gone into overtime a little bit with my uh, guest this hour, who is the author of a book called Suppressed, Confessions of a Former New York Times Washington Correspondent. Uh, it's by Robert M. Smith, and Bob joins me by phone. Bob, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. We were kind of wrapping things up and ran out of time, and I appreciate you uh, sticking around for a few more minutes. Tom, it's my pleasure. I love those breaks. My gosh. <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm glad because they, uh, um, well, they they help keep the lights on, as they say. Um, <laughs> but we try to. Can make, I tell you? We can I tell you fun. one thing Certainly. that will probably surprise you? <clears throat> uh, I I I know you know tons about this business. This may surprise you. After I had gone to law school, came back to Yale, and I had, the Times had offered me a few different jobs when it rehired me, and one of them was negotiating uh, for the paper with uh, the labor force, and I said no, and I went back to Washington as a correspondent. But I ended up, ironically, uh, being the uh, uh, steward for the newspaper guild that represents editors and, and reporters, journalists, at the paper in contract negotiations with the Times on the other side of the table from the guy who was hired <laughs> to take the job I turned down, right? So, but the point is, uh, it was uh, late at night, getting me 2 a.m., 3 a.m. We weren't getting to home base on the contract. And the Times kept saying, we don't have money, we don't have money, so we can't give you raises. So, uh, you know, after we heard enough of that, you know, and uh, at some point, I finally said, well, look, um, okay, I get the fact that you don't have the money to give us raises, uh, okay, but here's a non-economic item, which you should give us. Uh, we want the right to have our byline taken off our story if you change the story. So if somebody writes a story and the editor changes it, uh, we want that reporter to be able to take his or her byline off it. And they said, no. I said, no, it's a non-economic item. It's the right thing to do. Uh, I later learned there's an international treaty on the subject. And they said, yeah, no, we're not doing it. I said, I, and then at that point, having been to law school, I guess I feigned anger and said, look, you know, if you can't give us this item, which we have every right to have, then I'm gonna recommend to our team that we strike. And I walked out, and uh, I didn't know what was going to happen. And we were really worried about striking because, you know, we're water to affluent people. Reporters don't get paid a lot. <laughs> and uh, 20 minutes later, they came back and said, okay, you can have that item. But it's always stuck in my mind that uh, the paper wanted to retain the right to keep your byline, 
on the piece if it changed the piece, the article. You mean people uh, that, that write for the Times don't have uh, cottages in the Hamptons? <laughs> Depends. Did you say right or run? I didn't quite get that. I said right. I said right, and very specifically. Yeah. Uh, no, they don't. Uh, they didn't. And I don't think they, they still do have cottages in the Hamptons. Uh, you know? <laughs> well, Bobby, but they they do get they do get bylines. <laughs> Bob, is this uh, is this book suppressed? Is it? Um, is this kind of a one-off on the subject, or are there other things that you would like to uh, get into and write about? No, not on this topic. I've had uh, my my say. If people find it helps them in reading and dealing with the media, that's great. But I think that's all I really have to offer on the subject. I've put it as much as I could in the book. Well, Bob, I, I do want to wrap up um, as as we started to just before the break with uh, how people can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. And and you were drawing the distinction between your mediation business and the book, um, but you do have a website under your name, Robert Smith. Robert M. Smith, I do. Yeah. That's that's about the mediation practice. That's all my background and all that. It's for the book. You just you know, Google the book, you'll find it on all the usual places, Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble and independent books and all those places. So you won't have any problem. Well, Bob, it's been a real pleasure. It's been uh, an honor and a privilege to get to uh, know you a little bit and spend a little time talking about this important book. Tom, the pleasure. I really, I, I enjoyed the uh, interview thoroughly and I, I've done a number of them. I really enjoyed this one. And I'm no kidding. I, I like those those breaks in addition as a little <laughs> kind of dessert. Thanks. All right. Take care. Keep up the good work. Thank you. All See you right. later. Bye-bye. Again, that was uh, Robert M. Smith, uh, Bob as he's known, and um, he is the author of a book called Suppressed, Confessions of a Former New York Times Washington correspondent. Coming up in uh, just a few minutes, we'll get into our weekly uh, political roundtable armchair politics. Political operative Bobby Clayton Walton will be joining um, our roundtable regulars. Uh, Flint's premier political pundit Paul Rosicki on the left and longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter on the right. So I hope you'll uh, stick around and enjoy today's edition of armchair politics.
getting out in a car He didn't notice that the lights had changed A crowd of people stood aside They seen his face before Nobody was really sure if he was from the house of Notice I was late. Grab my coat, grab my hat, made the books and seconds flat. By my well says, and I had a smoke. Somebody spoke, and I went into a dream. Sumner, program.com. From 
show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs>